Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Blaine here. Before we get started, I just wanted to apologize for the audio quality in this particular episode. We used a slightly different setup to record three voices, and some of our key recording elements failed, so we had to go from backup, which also meant we had Skype pulling from my laptop's built-in mic instead of the Yeti. So, with that, and with our guests sometimes fading in and out, I apologize, things were not perfect. But the conversation is audible. I'm very happy with what was said. So presenting it to you anyway, and again, just apologizing for the final sound quality. Now, on with the podcast. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years, 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. I'm Trey Hooks, and with me as always is my co-host Blaine Dower. How are you doing today, Blaine? I'm doing well, Trey. How about you? Good, thank you. I'm especially pleased because we have a returning guest with us. Uh, everyone, please welcome John Wilson back to the show. Yay! I'm welcome, I'm welcome. But well, you made us an offer we couldn't refuse. And just when you thought you were out, we pulled you back in. I know. <laughs> With that, everyone could probably tell that this time we're looking at the 47th Annual Academy Awards, covering films released in 1974, and the best picture of that year, The Godfather Part Two, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, the Godfather Part Two premiered on December 20th, 1974, featured Robert De Niro as Vito Corleone, Al Pacino as Michael Corleone, John Cazale as Fredo Corleone, Robert Duvall as Tom Hagen, and Talia Shire as Connie Corleone. The film's screenplay was written by Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo, based on Mario Puzo's book, The Godfather. Our synopsis, as always, comes from the fine contributors to Wikipedia, the film intercuts between events sometime after The Godfather and the early life of Vito Corleone. Uh, the synopsis is written in such a way that it covers those events more or less chronologically, beginning with Vito. In 1901, the family of nine-year-old Andolini is killed in Corleone, Sicily, after his father insults local mafia chieftain Don Siccio. Vito escapes to New York City and is registered on arrival as Vito Corleone. In 1917, Vito lives in New York with his wife Carmela and their infant son, Sonny. He loses his job due to the interference of Don Finucci, a local black hand extortionist. His neighbor, Peter Clemenza, asks Vito to hide a bag of guns. As thanks, Clemenza enlists Vito's help in stealing a rug, which he gifts to Carmela. The Corleones have three more children sons Fredo and Michael, and daughter Connie. Meanwhile, Vito Clemenza and new partner Salvatore, Salvatore Tessio make income by stealing goods and reselling them door-to-door. This enterprise attracts the attention of Finucci, who extorts them. Vito convinces his skeptical partners that he will talk Finucci into accepting a smaller payment. During a neighborhood festa, Vito pays, a, pays an incredulous Finucci a much smaller amount and is offered a job as an enforcer. Vito later kills Finucci in his apartment. Vito becomes a formidable and well-respected community member by helping locals in exchange for favors. In 1923, he and his family visit Sicily. Vito and his business partner visit Don Siccio ostensibly to ask for Siccio's blessing on their olive oil business. Siccio asks for the name of Vito's father. Vito reveals his identity and stabs Siccio to death, avenging his family. On to Michael's part of the story. In 1958, during his son's first communion party at Lake Tahoe, Michael has a series of meetings in his role as the Don of the Corleone crime family. Frank Pentangeli, a Corleone capo, is dismayed that Michael refuses to help defend his Bronx territory against the Rosado brothers, who work for Hyman Roth, 
a Jewish mob boss and longstanding Corleone business partner. That night, a failed assassination attempt at his home prompts Michael to suddenly depart after confiding in consigliere Tom Hagen that he suspects a traitor within the family. Michael suspects Roth planned the assassination, but falsely tells Roth he suspects Pinch and Jelly. In New York City, under Michael's instructions, Pinch and Jelly attempts to make peace with the Rosados, but they try to kill him. A sickly Roth, Michael, and several of their partners travel to Havana to discuss their future Cuban business prospects under the cooperative government of Fulgencio Batista. Michael becomes reluctant to continue operating in Cuba given the, given the ongoing Cuban revolution. On New Year's Eve, Fredo pretends not to know Johnny Ola, Roth's right-hand man, but later inadvertently reveals they know each other, leading Michael to realize that Fredo is the traitor. Michael orders hits on Ola and Roth. His enforcer strangles Ola with a coat hanger, but is killed by Cuban soldiers as he tries to smother Roth. Batista abdicates due to rebel advances. During the ensuing chaos, Michael, Fredo, and Roth separately escape Cuba. Back home, Michael learns that his wife, Kay, has miscarried. In Washington, D.C., a Senate committee on organized crime is investigating the Corleone family. Pentangeli agrees to testify against Michael, who he believes had betrayed him to the Rosados, and is placed under witness protection. On returning to Nevada, Fredo tells Michael that he did not know that Roth had intended to kill him. He resents being disregarded as stupid by the family and feels that he should have taken over the family after their father's death. Michael disowns Fredo but gives orders that he's not to be harmed while their mother is alive. Michael sends for Pentangeli's brother from Sicily. Pentangeli, after seeing his brother in the hearing room, retracts his previous statement indicting Michael in organized crime. The hearing dissolves in an uproar. Kay reveals to Michael that she actually had an abortion, not a miscarriage. She intends to leave him and take their children. Outraged, Michael strikes Kay, banishes her from the family, and takes sole custody of the children. Carmela dies sometime later, and Michael hurries to wrap up loose ends. At the funeral, Michael appears to forgive Fredo at Connie's behest, but exchanges a glance with Corleone enforcer Al Neri, suggesting that Fredo is to be killed. Soon afterward, Neri shoots Fredo dead while the two are fishing, as Michael watches from his den. Roth is forced to return to the United States after being refused asylum and entry to Israel. On Michael's orders, Roth is assassinated by Corleone capo regime Rocco Lampone during an interview at the Miami International Airport. Lampone is killed in turn by a federal agent while attempting to flee the scene. At Pentangeli's compound, Hagen visits and the two discuss how failed plotters against the Roman Emperor often committed suicide in return for clemency for their families. Pentangeli is later found dead in his bathtub, having split his wrist. Kay visits her children. As she is saying goodbye, Michael arrives and closes the door on her. The film ends with a flashback to Vito's 50th birthday party, occurring on the same day that the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. While the family waits to surprise Vito, Michael announces that he has dropped out of college and joined the Marines. Angering Sonny and Hagen, Fredo is the only member of the family to support his decision. Back in the present, Michael sits alone at the family compound, looking out over the lake. And thus ends The Godfather Part 2. What were everyone's, if, well, if it was the first time initial impressions, or if it was a rewatch, your impressions uh, this time? This was a rewatch for me, but only uh, the second time I've seen it. And the first time I watched both The Godfathers was a good 20 years ago. I had never seen them growing up, and so I just made it a point to watch all three films in like a weekend or two. And uh, so whenever y'all were coming up on part two, I was like, oh, I've been meaning to rewatch this for a while now. This is a great opportunity to, to make myself do it. Um, man. It's just, it's like the first film was a transition. You know, you have this, you have this uh, establishment, this um, culture, this legacy. And, you know, whenever the, the patriarch of the family becomes ill, or, you know, he's shot, but, you know, sick afterwards, it passes on to Michael. And so it's just kind of a transitional story of how we go from one head of the power to the other head of the power. This is like a fall, you know? It's a fall from everything that the family seemed to enjoy in its height. We start out no longer in New York trying to make things work in Las Vegas, and it already feels different. You know, it's, it's 
it opens on a party just like the first one did, but just the sense of everything different. There's discontent. There's there's grumbling instead of uh, um, encompassing reverence for the dawn. There's there's backbiting and, and you know, and we just go through the course of the story where, as we see in flashbacks, Vito builds up his life and builds up toward this place as a man of respect and authority, and he does it through currying favor in a, from a place of power, though. Like, he, he gives favors, he returns favors, you know, or he, he, he does favors and accepts favors, you know, that sort of thing. While he's building up his power, Michael is struggling to keep his together. He's fighting against his family, his immediate family. He's fighting against his extended family. He's fighting against nemeses. He's fighting against the law. And at the end of it all, we get a flashback to everything he once had as he sits there at a complete loss of everything that was important to him. And it's just, it's, it's this insane tragedy. But yeah, it's, I don't know. It's a pretty amazing tapestry is what it is. Yeah, this was my first time viewing it. And I got to say, I liked it more than part one, partly because of the attitudes of society changing towards them. Because as John said in the earlier part, they had the general support of the populace. And here they don't. So on top of the internal fighting, externally, they don't have the same level of support they had. You know, the politicians are not just being bought. They're trying to leverage and get money from them, which Michael deals with fairly effectively in a sequence that I don't even recall being part of the synopsis. This is, you know, almost three and a half hour movie. That synopsis was incomplete but hit all the major points so i i appreciate the fact that yes this time they are not necessarily shown as heroes which was some of the impression you got the first time and that is part of my issue with a lot of organized crime films is bringing them up as the good guys and they're not the good guys so yeah we're seeing really it's the most one of the most effective villains in a collection of villains and that's where the story is he's not glorified he is respected for his skills in terms of the storytelling, but he's not glorified. Well, there's an important a aspect that John hit on, and it's the transition to Las Vegas. And I'm not disagreeing with anything that you said, Blaine, but you don't really see Michael functioning as the Don in Godfather Part 1. He becomes the Don in Godfather Part 1. He doesn't grant favors throughout this film like his father did. He gives orders. But also part of that is his father functioned as part – I mean, New York's a large urban center, don't get me wrong, but functioned as part of a community. And in Las Vegas, there's not that sense of community. But, you know, Las Vegas, as portrayed in this film, is not somewhere that you have – families and schools and churches it's all casinos and just that transition of running it more as a business than than a community i think underscores a lot of the difficulties that michael's going to have it's that line i think it was one of the Vito flashbacks it's like why is he an italian attacking other italians you know and in new york you know they're able to play a part in a larger italian community where, especially in the early 20th century, a lot of those people were either immigrants themselves or like the sons of immigrants and daughters of immigrants. And so the, the, the connection to Italy is very, very strong culturally. And they're able to operate within that in New York. And all of that is wholly absent in Las Vegas. And we mentioned it in the Sting episode. I, I just wrapped up, uh, listening to, uh, Karina Longworth's You Must Remember This series on Sammy Davis and Dean Martin, and a big undercurrent of that was how the two men both started in their careers as part of marginalized minorities, and the big difference between them was from the 40s to the 60s, the Italians stopped being a marginalized minority, and African Americans did not. And you have Vito on one side of that transition and Michael on the other. Right. Yeah, that's a good point, because certainly uh, racial hatred plays a role in this story with comments about black people and Jewish people. 
very disparagingly so. But although there are comments early in the film about Italian Americans, that 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 does transition through the course of the film. And the biggest person to make those kinds of comments, the, the one senator, for the purposes of his own gain and, and station with, with Michael, we can't on a lot of that. But it does sort of represent that transition you're saying of the place that Italian Americans, and certainly these are blanket statements. Sure. Not, you know, these generalizations, but, but there definitely was a transition. What did you think of the Fredo through line in this film? Like, I, I thought that, first off, Michael was suspicious before he got that confirmation. So, yes, he got the confirmation when Fredo says that, oh, yeah, Johnny Ola showed this place to me in a previous visit when he claimed that they, they never knew each other. But I, the way he was playing it, I thought he was already suspicious. But that could just be Michael being suspicious of everyone except Tom Hagen and, until he had anything concrete. But, yeah, I do appreciate that because you could see Fredo's side if it's just going by... By age, I could see why he felt he deserved that role, but he didn't. And the fact that he got suckered is clear evidence that he didn't. So, I mean, we also knew where his story was going as soon as he said, yeah, nothing's going to happen to him while our mother lives. And then we don't see Fredo again until their mother's funeral. That was just, okay, the clock is ticking. And how how and when is it coming? So it was well written, but, and yeah, definitely... I know uh, Trey said last time when we were talking about the first Godfather that yes, he would have a bigger role in the sequel, and he, he definitely does. It's I honestly barely remember him from the first one. Yeah, I I think in those three hours he had what maybe fifteen or twenty minutes of screen time, and that might be an overestimate. He, he did. This is don't get me wrong. I think you can watch the Godfather Part Two without having seen the Godfather Part One and still feel like you've seen a good film. But this is one of the first times to where a sequel really depends on its predecessor. Because he doesn't have a lot of running time in the first Godfather. And normally, you know, it's Sonny pushing him to the side or people telling him, don't speak. But ultimately, Fredo is the cause of everything falling apart for Michael. And not just because of the assassination attempt. It starts with when the hit's put on Vito, Fredo is sent with Mo Green in, La, in Las Vegas to kind of be protected out of the way of danger and learn that business. So it's really Fredo who starts putting the first kind of flag down for the Corleone family in Vegas. And when Michael goes to Vegas and sees Mo Green pushing Fredo around, the way the rest of his family has pushed him around, quite honestly, to make that transition to Vegas at the end of the first film, he has Mo Green killed, and it's particularly vicious because of the way Mo treats Fredo. And that's the whole reason why, or that's a large part of the reason why Hyman Roth puts the target on Michael in this film is because of the relationship that Roth had with Mo Green. Yeah, this is definitely more of a part two than a sequel, even though Coppola had to fight to get part two instead of just Godfather 2. But again, in an era where home video was not common, and watching an unedited version of the original Godfather on television wasn't going to happen, this does a decent job of giving you the necessary exposition, including recapping Tom Phelan as, or Tom Hagen as a stepbrother, right? Instead of a blood brother. All of that is done in the dialogue, so they were definitely aware that, yeah, people might not have seen The Godfather for two years, so let's give them the reminders that they need. Otherwise, you said, the way it's cut, it, it's a little, it's not as clear. And it was cut differently than the first draft. The critics hated the review copy that went out because they found that they were intercutting between Michael and Vito too much. So they went back and re-edited it to make each of those sequences a bit longer. I feel like the second movie does give you everything you need for the story. The idea of an older brother passed over by the father, that is an easily accessible story concept. Knowing the first film, knowing the context, knowing Mo Green, everything adds, certainly adds depth and meaning and context to everything. But it's not really necessary to understand the dynamic between Michael and Freeman. And I think that's part of what makes this film 
so great because up until now you had a lot of films to where the first 10 minutes would be telling you what happened in the last movie. Right. The whole mystery of who betrayed Michael was something that I kind of found myself in the weeds on because there are so many red herrings and so many twists and turns with it that I honestly wasn't sure at any point because Michael is playing all of his possible nemeses against each other. And at the end of the day, they're all kind of against him to one degree or another. So it's just a matter of who did the ultimate betrayal. But whenever it finally comes out to be Fredo, I wasn't entirely sure that was the ultimate answer. You know, of course, it becomes clear. But I did find, of course, there's so much movie <laughs> and so many things going on. And it's possible that my ADHD brain, you know, wandered away from some of the details. But of all the aspects of the film, that was the one I found the least clear was who betrayed and tried to assassinate Michael and why, you know. But with Fredo, I don't know, he he's the older brother, but it's obvious in the first film that he's not an important player. In fact, he's he's for me, I found him easy to forget that he even existed or that he was a brother and not just a person in the in the in the organization or family or whatever. It was Sonny and Michael. And so when Sonny got killed, which oh my God, that was a moment. I did not see that coming. He was on his way to save Connie and deal with her abuser husband, and it just gets killed on the way. And I was just like, wow, okay. But with him gone, the fact that Don Corleone turned to Michael for the, as the heir apparent, just seemed like, oh, okay, the one brother's gone, the other brother's here. I, I, I just easily found it, I found it easy to forget Fredo existed in the first film. So whenever he's here and he, like, he's resenting all of that, I get it because he was completely marginalized in his family. And he says, I'm smart in a way that is like, you know, <laughs> kind of reminds me in Game of Thrones when Joffrey keeps insisting I'm the king. And someone says, a good king doesn't have to keep insisting that he's the king. Fred was like, I'm smart in a way that no one, no one agrees with that. <laughs> well, it's, it's degrees of smart, right? So right. it's not that Fredo is necessarily an idiot, but he doesn't have the capacity to strategize at the level that Michael has to just to try and keep everything spinning. Yeah, it's like the thing in the Fantastic Four, right? The thing in the Fantastic Four likes to downplay his intelligence. He's a pilot and an engineer. He's got multiple university degrees, but... When you're standing next to Reed Richards, you're an idiot. I don't care who you are. Yeah. And, and that's it. Fredo is intelligent. Fredo is the reason the family is still surviving. When they made that transition to Vegas, it's because Fredo worked it and set it up. But, yeah, he's just not on the level as everyone else. Like, it, it could be, Fredo could be smart as in, like, you know, IQ 115, 120, and everybody else here is in the 130s and 140s with a mindset that is better suited to this. Just the fact that Fredo let the other guys in, saying, oh, I didn't know it was going to be a hit. This is what they said they were doing. He was too trusting to have the role he felt he deserved. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think you missed anything, John. I think while the clues were there that it was Fredo, I also think that just as many clues were laid that it was Pentangeli. Uh, on the rewatch, I thought that the hit on Pentangeli was done by Michael because of that, you know, Michael Corleone gives his regards. Um, right. And, it, you know, it doesn't come out until later that, <laughs> you know, schemes within schemes, Roth set that up to put Pentangeli on the path, uh, you know, to be willing to betray Michael. So I, you know, while I knew, while I remembered that Fredo had betrayed him, that pension jelly was a good addition to the storyline because he didn't really play a part in the first one, but here he is um, from the very beginning, from the from the uh, post communion party. There, there's an interesting story behind that. So that was originally supposed to be the character of Clemenza, and the 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 studio could not come to terms with the actor who played Clemenza in The Godfather, so it forced Coppola to create a different character, but in the original draft, um, Pintangeli was Clemenza. Interesting. I guess there was a couple of edits. Palcino didn't want to do the first draft that they gave him, so Coppola and Puzo 
did a, a complete rewrite in a day or two and sent it back because the the studio if if Pacino backed out the studio was saying yeah we're not making this movie which would have been the right call so Pacino vetoed the first writing of the of the second movie uh yeah according to the notes here on Wikipedia so uh production however nearly ended before it began when Pacino's lawyers told Coppola that he had grave misgivings with the script and was not coming Coppola spent an entire night rewriting it before giving it to Pacino for his review. Pacino approved it, and the production went forward. I used to wonder specifically what problems Pacino had with the first event dropped. Uh, it's probably one of those things that's lost to behind-the-scenes history. Yeah. Uh, y'all want to talk about Connie? Yes, because this is an important so, transition for Connie. Yeah, she's... I feel like she is um, a consistently important member of the backdrop of the story, you know, like because it's a patriarchal situation, she rarely takes center stage, but like the events of her life and, and everything else are constantly influencing the way things are going. We open on her wedding in the first film. She's the one getting married and everyone's so happy and so excited. But then her husband turns out to be the abuser in the first film which completely shatters all of her dreams of the kind of life she could live. And it, you know, to me, it just sort of highlighted where the world was when it came to domestic abuse at that time in history. The only way to stop it was to go beat the man up. And that didn't really stop him. You know, it kept on going. We get to the second film and she's completely disenchanted with romance. She's obviously been, you know, I'm not a sex shamer, but the way the story is presented, she's been, you know, messing around, sleeping around guy after guy. And now this one guy who's not an Italian is basically vetoed by the family. Uh, Michael does not want her to marry him. He wants her to come back and be part of the family. But, you know, in the in the sort of submissive women or second class citizens kind of way. And Tony doesn't want to do that. Tony wants to be her own person, regardless of what that means. But then you know, she plays an important part in trying to bring the family back together. It's obvious that Michael loves his sister. And so whenever she says, please forgive Fredo, he's at least willing to put up appearances to appease her. And of course, she's there for Kay. So she's like, she's constantly playing a part. It's just not as not as a, a front player. It's that gender roles of the time, right? So Michael is expected to lead the business, the family as a business, and she's expected to be the matriarch and actually look over the family unit. And you're right. To the extent that Kay stays in the story, that's a lot of Connie's doing. And as you were saying that, John, I, I think you could almost, you know, Carmela is such a non-entity in the story. You could almost do like a Godfather 2B and kind of juxtapose Carmela's life with Connie's life. Especially with what happens in what happens in three with Connie and the family. I don't even remember what that is. Uh, the three is, is she, well, actually all three of these are a very vague memory for me. It, I mean, in while she's not a fit, while she is not his consigliere, she get she cross she crosses the line into taking part in the family business, as in the business side of things and she has her own views of what's good for michael and what's good for the family and sometimes the moves she makes are beneficial and sometimes they run counter to what michael's plans are well good for her because i, I think it's 1989 1990 the uh the gender politics have shifted exactly that, her being able to step up more be able to take more active role regardless of michael's opinion on whether it's good for him or not uh, that's something i can appreciate she, uh, you know, Carmela is little more than a face in both of these films. The statement's even more true in the second one than the first one. She's a face that you see a couple of times in the film and not much more than that. So Connie is able to see more of her is, is good. One other note. Uh, there's a lot of people who we saw just as their careers were starting in these films that launched a lot of careers. And that other guy that she married, Merle Johnson, was played by Troy Donahue, not just a lyric from Greece. Nice. Oh, and uh, the uh, actor who tries to kill uh, 
um, hint and jelly was Danny Aiello. Yeah. Uh, one of the FBI agents who was protecting that Prangeli was Her- Harry Dean Stanton, who you know would go on to Alien and a, a bit part in Avengers because Joss Whedon loves Alien. And uh, another one that stood out to me was Peter Donat. He was at Questat, Hiram Roth's guy on the panel. I will always know him as Fox Mulder's father, Bill, from the X-Files. And one of the other senators was actually Roger Corman, who gave Francis Ford Coppola his start and has produced a tremendous number of films, I don't think any of which have ever been part of the Oscar conversation. There were a lot of faces in this film that I was like, oh, I've seen them a lot in later stuff. And this is probably one of the main films that, like, well, for some of the older actors, probably not. But, you know, this film probably played a large role in them becoming actors or not becoming, but, like, you know, gaining prominence in that scene. Where do you want to go next? Do you want to go ahead and go to the nominees, Blaine? Sure, we can do that. So the 47th Annual Awards were held on April 8th, 1975 in the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, Los Angeles. Hosted by Bob Hope, Shirley MacLaine, Sammy Davis Jr., and Frank Sinatra. So, Best Picture went to The Godfather Part 2, beating out Chinatown, The Conversation, Lenny, and The Towering Inferno. Best Director went to Francis Ford Coppola for The Godfather Part 2, beating out Roman Polanski, Francois Truffaut, Bob Fosse, and John Cassavetes for Chinatown, Day for Night, Lenny, and A Woman Under the Influence, respectively. Best Actor went to Art Carney for Harry and Tonto, uh, beating out... Albert Finney in Murder on the Orient Express, Dustin Hoffman in Lenny, Jack Nicholson in Chinatown, and Al Pacino in The Godfather Part Two. Uh, Best Actress went to Ellen Burstein for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, as the title character, beating out Diane Carroll for Claudine, Faye Dunaway for Chinatown, Valerie Perrin for Lenny, and Gina Rowlands for A Woman Under the Influence. Best Supporting Actor, Robert De Niro, took it home for Godfather Part Two, beating out Fred Astaire, in The Towering Inferno, Jeff Bridges from Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, Michael V. Gazzo from The Godfather Part Two as Frank Pentangeli, and Lee Strasberg for The Godfather Part Two as Hyman Roth. Best Supporting Actress went to Ingrid Bergman for Murder on the Orient Express, uh, beating out Valentina Cortez in Day for Night, Madeline Kahn for Blazing Stiles, Diane Ladd for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, and Talia Shire for The Godfather Part Two. Just want to note, Madeline Kahn, it's not easy to hit the acting awards for a comedy, and she did it for Blazing Saddles. Best Original Screenplay went to Robert Town for his screenplay for Chinatown, beating out screenplays for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, The Conversation, Day for Night, and Harry and Tonto. Best Screenplay Adapted from Another Material went to The Godfather Part Two for Francis Ford Coppola, based on, or and Mario Puzo, based on Puzo's novel, beating out The Apprenticeship of Daddy Kravitz, Lenny, Murder on the Orient Express, and Young Frankenstein. Best Foreign Language Film went to Amarcord, coming out of Italy, beating out Cat's Play from Hungary, The Deluge from Poland, La Calme Lucien from France, and The Truce from Argentina. Best Documentary Feature went to Hearts and Minds and Peter Davis, beating out The 81st Blow, Antonia, Portrait of the Woman, The Challenge, A Tribute to Modern Art, and The Wild and the Brave. Best Documentary Short Subject went to Don't by Raman Lehman, beating out City Out of Wilderness, Exploratorium, John Wire's High Sierra, and Naked Yoga. Best Live Action Short Film, One-Eyed Men Are Kings, Beat Out Climb, The Concert, Planet Ocean, and The Violin. Best Animated Short Film went to Closed Mondays, beating out The Family at Dwelt Apart, Hunger, Voyage to Next, and Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2. Best Original Dramatic Score went to Nino Rota and Carmine Coppola for The Godfather Part 2, beating out Jerry Goldsmith's score for Chinatown, as well as the scores for Murder on the Orient Express, Shanks, and John Williams' score for The Towering Inferno. Best Scoring, Original Song Score, and Adaptation or Scoring Adaptation went to The Great Gatsby, adapted by Nelson Riddle. I'm used to hearing Nelson Riddle as the guy who came up with the theme song to the 1966 Batman. That beat out the scores to The Little Prince and Phantom of the Paradise. (laughs) Yes, the movie that's just... Really a vessel to get Kiss into movies. Um, best song, We May Never Love Like This Again, by or from The Towering Inferno, beating out Benji's theme from Benji, the title song from Blazing Saddles, the title song from The Little Prince, and Whoever or Wherever Love Takes Me from Gold. That's music by Elmer Bernstein, who is about 10 years away from the movie I know him best from. Best costume design went to The Great Gatsby by Theoni V. Aldridge, 
Beating Out Chinatown, Daisy Miller, Godfather Part 2, and Murder on the Orient Express. Best Sound went to Earthquake, Beating Out Chinatown, The Conversation, The Towering Inferno, and Young Frankenstein. Best Art Direction went to The Godfather Part 2, Beating Out Chinatown, Earthquake, The Island at the Top of the World, and The Towering Inferno. Best Cinematography went to The Towering Inferno, Beating Out Chinatown, Earthquake, Lenny, and Murder on the Orient Express. And, oh, Murder on the Orient Express was by Jeffrey Unsworth. He would also be in that same movie 10 years from now. He worked on 2001 A Space Odyssey as well. Best Film Editing went to The Towering Inferno, Beating Out Blazing Saddles, Earthquake, Chinatown, and The Longest Yard. The Special Achievement Award went to the Visual Effects for Earthquake. Uh, the Academy Honorary Awards went to Jean Renoir and Howard Hawks. The Gene Herschelt Humanitarian Award went to Arthur B. Krim. And just for the statistics end, for multiple nominated films, Chinatown and Godfather Part Two both had 11 nominations. Towering Inferno had 8. Lenny and Murder on the Orange Express both had 6. Earthquake had 4. Alice Doesn't Leave Here Anymore, Blazing Saddles, The Conversation, and Day for Night each had 3. And Great Gatsby, Harry and Tonto, Little Prince, Woman Under the Influence, and Young Frankenstein had two each. And then the multiple award winners, The Godfather Part Two won six, Towering Inferno won three, and Great Gatsby won two. Okay, so that is the rundown of the Academy Awards themselves. So let's start with the big one. How do you guys feel about the decision to put Godfather Part Two above Chinatown, The Conversation, Lenny, and The Towering Inferno? I, I think it was the right decision. They're all great films. I mean, even, you know, both off-air and on-air, we've talked about separating the artist from the work when it comes um, to Roman Polanski. In any other year, I would have seen Chinatown winning, but just the scope and sweep of Godfather Part Two puts it ahead. John? I don't know any of the other films, but I, I, w I would be hard-pressed to imagine a film surpassing The Godfather Part Two and just the, uh, the epic drama. And I mean that, like, like not epic and like, oh, epic, but like, like, this feels like an epic. This feels like a huge story with like, um, you trace a large, a large scope to it. It's, you know, the, the, the one bit of scene of, of dialogue comparing things to the Roman Empire is not, is not feel misplaced, you know, like we had a transition of emperor and a fall of the empire kind of thing going on, or certainly a step toward the fall of the empire. The Corleone family still exists at the end, but not in any shape or form like it was at the beginning of the first film. And um, from my perspective, I'm only familiar with three of them. So I've seen The Godfather Part Two, The Conversation, and The Towering Inferno. Frankly, if Chinatown had won, this podcast wouldn't exist because I just, I, I can't do Roman Polanski. Uh, listeners, if you're not familiar with that separating art from the artist conversation that we've had before or why Polanski is... The, the guy who's producing this reaction from me. We won't get into it on the podcast, but if you choose to Google it, have a vomit bag handy. So as for uh, the others, um, The Towering Inferno is also impressive from a spectacle level, but not a complexity or depth level. Like The Godfather Part Two, you could pull the threads and see the nuance. Towering Inferno is, holy crap, they got the movie made, but there's not a lot of depth. So it... I get the respect of giving it the Oscar nomination because it was so hard to make, but I also agree that it shouldn't have taken home the statue. Uh, the Conversation is another one that could have taken it in a lot of years. It's also fantastic. It lists Gene Hackman, John Cazale, Alan Garfield, Cindy Williams, Frederick Forrest, Harrison Ford, Terry Garr, and Robert Duvall on the cast, and also Francis Ford Coppola, who put together Godfather Part Two. So yeah, I... I don't think it was overlooked for Best Picture, but I do think the conversation was overlooked for one of these. I don't know if you guys want to talk about some of the other major awards first, but from those I've seen, I have no issues whatsoever with Godfather Part Two taking it home. Yeah, I I also recommend The Towering Inferno. We're about to see in 1975 the blockbuster really take form, but The Towering Inferno was kind, is kind of the prime example of that star-studded disaster film that kind of was the proto-blockbuster before Jaws. You know, Earthquake, which, you know, got the Best Visual Effects Award, was another entry from kind of that disaster subgenre. So how do you guys feel about the director or acting categories? Really surprised that Coppola didn't even... Oh, wait, no, he won. Never mind. Yeah. Um, I was reading it 
completely wrong. Not seeing the majority of the other films, it's really hard. It's really hard to say. I really need to see Lenny just because I was not impressed that much with Cabaret to see if I like Bob Fosse and something that's not what should have been his wheelhouse. And I just haven't seen the, the other two films. John, any thoughts on director or the acting? I was surprised that uh, Robert De Niro won, but Al Pacino didn't. But at the same time, Al Pacino tends to portray a rather stone-faced Michael. Like, he's going through a lot of stuff, and you can see the emotion, but he is a very hard man. And um, that, the, the character is a very hard man. Whereas Robert De Niro is able to play a wider range because the character goes through a wider range of um, situations and reactions to those situations. Basically, Robert De Niro is playing a younger version of a character we saw um, in the first film. So he has to kind of ape that actor. And he does a good job of making you feel like it's the same actor, but not, sorry, making you feel like it's the same character, but not just mimicking the performance. So I can see Robert De Niro definitely uh, meriting that statue. I, 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 I complete John, I, or I agree, John. You know, just, you know, interesting fact tidbits. The best, um, the Godfather. Marlon Brando took home Best Actor for Vito, and Al Pacino lost again that year because he, James Caan, and Robert Duvall, all three, they made up like almost the entire nomination pool for Best Supporting Actor, and Joel Gray won for Cabaret, and Wayne and I had kind of made the assumption that maybe all three of them having been for the same film kind of split the vote. Uh. And yet here, Robert De Niro wins with, again, three nominees from Godfather Part Two yep. in that category. But honestly, yeah, Caso and Strasberg did well, but not well enough to split the vote from De Niro. So, And I, for the best actor, the one that really blows me away is Art Carney taking it home. I've never seen Harry and Tonto. Now I kind of do, because I know Art Carney from The Honeymooners. And he was not directed to give an Oscar-caliber performance in television comedies at the time. That's not what they were looking for. So seeing that he was up against Albert Fitty, Dustin Hoffman, Jack Nicholson, and Al Pacino, and he took it home, I kind of want to see Harry and Tonto just to see that performance. Because, yeah, of, of those movies, I haven't seen this version of Murder on the Orient Express recently. The only other one I've seen is Pacino and The Godfather Part Two. But Fitty, Hoffman, Nicholson, and Pacino, I have never seen them do a bad performance. So the fact that Carney came out on top was a surprise. And then Best Actress, we have John here. So, not quite Michael Bailey, but still, we got to point out all, how it all comes back to Superman, with Best Actress nominees including Valerie Perrin, who would be Miss Tess Walker in 1978, and Faye Dunaway, who's the primary villain in Supergirl. We're both on the nomination list. So yeah, Faye Dunaway and Peter O'Toole, it was the cast that helped me convince my mother to take us to Supergirl when it came out. And we all walked out going, how did they get that cast to make this movie? <laughs> Fair question. Yeah. We're assuming that a huge part of the production budget was paychecks to them. I'll, I'll throw it out there. It's got nothing to do with Godfather Part 2. Um, I think the film you were thinking about with Kiss, Blaine, was um, Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park. Um, Phantom of the Paradise is Brian De Palma's um, rock opera blend of Phantom of the Opera and Faust. It is a complete head trip. I highly recommend it. And I want to live in a world where it won best score instead of The Great Gatsby or The Little Prince. Okay, yeah, you're right. I was thinking of the wrong film. So the only other comment I really have on any of the awards in any of the categories, I never had any desire to see Earthquake until today. I want to hear the sound that beat the conversation. Hmm. Because that movie is all about sound. I first saw it in a film studies class when we were studying film sound. It's not over the top, but that's that's the point. The sound design in that is incredible. And I I want to see how it lost, frankly. So did you guys have any other comments on the Oscars before we go on to the Golden Globes? Who was the actress from The Godfather Part Two who was up for supporting? That was Talia Shire for her role as Connie Corleone. 
Okay, that's what I thought. Okay. So moving on to the 32nd Annual Golden Globes, uh, the Best Picture in the Drama category went to Chinatown, beating out The Conversation, Earthquake, Godfather, Part 2, and A Woman Under the Influence. Comedy or Musical, The Longest Yard, beat out the front page, Harry and Tonto, The Little Prince, and The Three Musketeers, which, another Superman tie-in. Richard Lester directed The Three Musketeers and its sequel, and they convinced him to come finish Superman 2 and do Superman 3 on the promise that they would pay him what they hadn't paid him for his work on those. He was hired to direct one long movie, and then they split it into two, and he only got one director fee. Anyway, Best Performance in a Motion Picture Drama. Actor went to Jack Nicholson for Chinatown. The, he beat out James Caan in The Gambler, Gene Hackman in The Conversation, Dustin Hoffman in Lenny, and Al Pacino in The Godfather Part Two. Best Actress went to Gina Rollins for A Woman Under the Influence, beating out Ellen Verstein, uh, Faye Dunaway, Valerie Perrin, and Liv Ullman for Scenes from a Marriage. So the other three, or the other four in that category, it's all the same roles that got them the, the Oscar nomination. Now, uh, Best Performance in a Motion Picture Comedy or Musical, Best Actor went to Art Carney for Harry and Tonto, beating out James Earl Jones for Claudine, Jack Lemmon for the front page, Walter Matthau for the front page, and Burt Reynolds for The Longest Yard. Best Actress in a Comedy went to Raquel Welch for The Three Musketeers, beating out Lucille Ball, Diane Cannon, Helen Hayes, and Cloris Leachman. Continuing to feed Stanley's uh, crush on her. On, on Raquel Welch? Yeah. Yeah. She, she gets mentioned in a number of Marvel scripts. She does, and I'm surprised that Madeline Kahn wasn't even nominated considering she took home the Oscar. <laughs> Up against the dramatic roles. Now, Best Supporting, they don't separate by genre here. So Supporting Actor went to Fred Astaire in The Towering Inferno, which I suspect in both cases that's a Lifetime Achievement Award because his acting has never particularly impressed me and didn't when I saw Towering Inferno. Uh, but he beat out Eddie Albert for The Longest Yard, Bruce Dern for The Great Gatsby, John Huston for Chinatown, and Sam Waterston for The Great Gatsby. Best Supporting Actress went to Karen Black for The Great Gatsby, beating out B. Arthur for Mammy, Jennifer Jones for The Towering Inferno, Madeline Kahn for Young Frankenstein, and Diane Ladd for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. That's probably it for Madeline Kahn. She was nominated in the supporting category. De Niro didn't make the supporting actor list. No, he didn't. Almost makes me wonder if the Golden Globes treated it as, an act, as the lead actor instead of supporting. So Best Director went to Polanski for Chinatown, beating out John Cassavetes for Woman Under the Influence. Francis Ford Coppola had two nominations, one for The Conversation, one for Godfather Part Two, and Bob Fosse was up for Lenny. Best Screenplay went to Chinatown by Robert Town, same as the Oscars, beating out screenplays for The Conversation, The Godfather Part Two, The Towering Inferno, and A Woman Under the Influence. Best Original Score went to The Little Prince, beating out Chinatown, Earthquake, Godfather Part Two, and Phantom of the Paradise. So, just real quick, Wayne, going back to Best Director, in at this point in the Academy Awards, the studios have some control over the nominations because they have to submit films in certain categories, the Golden Globes, that doesn't happen which is probably why we did not see conversation in the best director list because they knew what happened with the golden globes was probably going to happen. That had to be a split vote thing. Yeah, I can see that. So except conversation is fantastic, but yeah, the Godfather part two is better. So I could get why they wouldn't submit both. Anyway, best original song went to I feel love from Benji beating out. I never met a rose from the little prince on and on from Claudine sail the summer winds from the dove. And We May Never Love Like This Again from The Towering Inferno. Best Foreign Film went to Scenes from a Marriage out of Sweden, beating out The Adventures of Rabbi Jacob, Amarcord, The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz, and Macomb Lucien. So yeah, The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz is technically a Canadian film. So they, while well, the Oscars do the foreign language films, they don't usually consider Canadian films as foreign because they separate it by the spoken language as though... All of the U.S. speaks English. Best Documentary Film went to Animals Are Beautiful People, beating out Birds Do It, Bees Do It, Hearts and Minds, I Am a Dancer, and Janice. New Star of the Year for the actor, it went to Joseph Bottoms for his role in The Dove, beating out James Hampton in The Longest Yard, Lee Strasberg in The Godfather Part Two, Stephen Warner in The Little Prince, and Sam Waterston in The Great Gatsby. New Star of the Year actress, Susan Flannery for The Towering Inferno, Beating out Julie Golson for Where the Lilies Bloom, 
Valerie Harper for Freebie and the Bean, Helen Reddy for Airport 1975, and Ann Turkle for 99 and 44 and of 100% dead. And then their television awards, Best Drama, Upstairs, Downstairs, won Best Series, Beating Out Columbo, Kojak, Police Story, The Streets of San Francisco, and The Waltons. Seems like there's a lot of detective series that were on the air. Best Series Comedy or Musical went to Rhoda, Beating Out All in the Family, The Carol Burnett Show, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, and Maud. Best Actor in a Drama, Tully Savalas won for Kojak, Beating Out Mike Connors in Mannix, Michael Douglas for The Streets of San Francisco, Peter Falk for Columbo, and Richard Thomas for The Waltons. Best Actress in a Drama Series went to Angie Dickinson for Policewoman, Beating Out Teresa Graves for Get Christy Love, Michael Learned for The Waltons, Jean Marsh for Upstairs Downstairs, Emily McLaughlin for General Hospital, and Lee Merriweather for Barnaby Jones, just in case we need another Batman connection. We always need another Batman connection. Especially this week, recording it a couple days after the passing of Kevin Conroy, the best Batman ever. Mm. Best Actor in a Comedy or Musical Series went to Alan Alda for M.A.S.H., Beating out Ed Asner for Mary Tyler Moore, Red Fox for Sanford and Son, Bob Newhart for The Bob Newhart Show, and Carol O'Connor for All in the Family. Best Actress in Comedy or Musical went to Valerie Harper for Rhoda, beating out Carol Burnett for her show, Mary Tyler Moore for her show, Estelle Roll for The Good Times, and Gene Stapleton for All in the Family. Best Supporting Actor, Harvey Corman won for The Carol Burnett Show, beating out Will Gear and The Waltons, Gavin McLeod of Mary Tyler Moore Show, Whitman Mayo for Sanford and Son, Jimmy Walker for Good Times. And Best Supporting Actress, Went to Betty Garrett for All in the Family, beating out Ellen Corby for The Waltons, Julie Kavner for Rhoda, Vicki Lawrence for The Carol Burnett Show, and Nancy Walker for Macmillan in Life. So, do you guys have any comments on the Golden Globes, aside from the fact that they definitely went the Chinatown road instead of the Godfather road? You know, it's just funny the difference in film and stage. B. Strasberg being up for New Star of the Year. The man only already had like a 20 to 30 year long Broadway career, but sure, he's a new star of the year. (laughs) Yeah, we've commented on how they select their new stars in the past and the complete lack of logic in the process sometimes. It just seems like we have no regard for stage performance careers, except for as they might be a background to somebody's film and TV career, but even TV takes backseat to films. I think we're starting to see that change a little bit with uh, a transition to um, streaming and long-form storytelling on, you know, streaming platforms. There might be a little bit of a transition to the prominence given to that versus films. But I don't know. I've always felt growing up that films were king, TVs were the duke, and uh, plays were like, okay, also ran. And that's just not fair to anyone's, you know, 20, 30-year career. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I would say that, you know, he might seem like a new star with the stage career because the downside of seeing someone who's spent 30 years on Broadway is that they're only going to be familiar to the people who go to Broadway. Oh, that's true. That's still kind of a rare thing in 74. Yeah, I have seen a grand total of one Broadway play in my life. The one time we were in New York, we checked out Spam a lot. Yeah, I guess films are much more accessible. Yeah, so I think that that could be part of it for yeah, it's audience familiarity would put TV and film above stage, but not necessarily respect of the talent. Since TV and film both started as basically filmed stage play setups, you know, like that was kind of a lot of the early production styles is we're just going to do a stage play, but film it. I, I, I kind of wish that filming a performance of a play and releasing that had become a norm at some point along the way. You know, let them have their run on, on, on stage or whatever, but like the last show of the season or one of the last shows of the season, film that sucker and put it out there for everyone to see. I just, I wish that had been a thing at some point. Yeah, it's starting to get there with low-selling DVD releases, so some of the, the stage plays are accessible, but not a lot. And I think within the industry, you've got to respect a lot of the, the stage plays because... You look at movies, you could have someone who gives three good takes out of eight who ends up taking home an Oscar. Right. Because they can edit together those good takes. To get the get it on the stage, you've got to give a consistently good performance time after time after time after time and not get bored delivering the same material over and over. I, I would think that the stage play is much more challenging because you can't just do a cut, change camera angle, and 
do it again in 30 second shots. Yeah, you can't dry on stage. I mean, it happens. People do. But TV shows and films have entire blooper reels of people, you know, drying on their lines and collapsing into laughter time after time. And you just, you can't do that on stage. You just can't. No, and if it starts to happen, you got to adapt, ad lib, run with it, and get back on track. So right. I think it is the most challenging of the three acting jobs, but it's just, it doesn't have the accessibility. On a related note, I, uh, you know, Richard Thomas, I know this is television, he was nominated for Best Actor in a Drama Series. I saw him on stage just recently instead of doing a set of, uh, you know, spring break, vacation, summer vacation, et cetera, this year. We decided to get uh, season tickets for the family to the Broadway series at the local uh, theater, and he's touring in To Kill a Mockingbird right now as Atticus Finch. So we got to see him at the uh, uh, local theater in that. It was really good. Mary Badham, who won Best Supporting Actress to bring it back to uh, the remit of our show back when we covered the year that To Kill a Mockingbird came out, is in that production. She now plays, uh, uh, I can't remember the character's name, but the old uh, widow neighbor who's so harsh to Scout. So shall we go through how time has treated these films? Sure. So going to the IMDb, and again, we are looking uh, specifically at anything released in 1974 as a feature film, which has at least 1,000 ratings on it. So the number one film of 1974 is The Godfather Part Two. In fact, in the IMDb Top 250 Films of All Time, it's number four. Wow. So I'd imagine whatever's the second highest of 1974 is a bit of a gap. Uh, there's a bit of a gap, but they actually both make the Top 250 list. Okay. So the second highest of the nominees is Chinatown at number eight, and that's in the Top 250 at number 156. So Scenes from a Marriage, the Golden Globe pick choice for the Best Foreign Film, is number four. And I'm scrolling down here, trying to find other nominees. We've got Young Frankenstein at 14. The Conversation comes in at number 21. Lenny is number 29. Uh, Scent of a Woman, but not that Scent of a Woman, is in at number 35. Although I think this one, it sounds like the Al Pacino version is a remake of this Italian film. Uh, a young private is assigned to accompany a blind captain. It soon becomes clear that they are both complex personalities. Huh. Oh, here at number 42, we have the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Not that it was nominated for anything. Harry Tonto is 56. Phantom of the Paradise is 52. Murder on the Orient Express is 53. I'm seeing the front page. Alice doesn't live here anymore. There's Claudine. The Longest Yard. Oh, here we go. Towering Inferno is coming in at number 77. So yeah, really, it's it's down to Godfather Part Two and uh, the conversation as far as these guys are concerned. Conversation does not make the IMDb Top 250. Now, Letterboxd also agrees that Godfather Part 2 is number one for the year, and also puts Chinatown at number eight. And then uh, they've got Conversation Higher. That's number 15 on their list. And I'm just scrolling through uh, the top 72. I am not seeing uh, the other nominees here. So it seems like history has agreed that, yes, Godfather Part 2 takes it home, and they've agreed that Conversation and Chinatown should be on the nominee list. Looking at these, considering that a lot of the other ones, you know, just with the understanding that non-English films did not tend to do well at the Oscars, and really still don't. I think Parasite is the first non-English language film to take home the big award. Yep, because when, you know, the other recent memory nominee was Life is Beautiful, and that they nominated it, they nominated it for both Best Picture and Best Foreign Language, and it won Best Foreign Language instead of Best Picture. And really, it was a contender for Best Picture. Yeah, which is almost like something of a consolation prize. Yeah, we had that same thing with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah, so it seems like, oh, when you're in for both categories, we'll at least give you this. But yeah, so, so far, Parasite is the first non-English language film, and of these 100 films that we intend to talk about, 95 have received the award at the time of this recording, and Parasite's number 93. So, Looking ahead a little bit, if everything, everywhere, all at once gets nominated uh, for this year, 
I'll be interested in seeing how it gets nominated because about ha- about half the film is in English and about half the film is in Mandarin with subtitles. It's been sitting in my two-watch pile for far too long. Um, Same here. So, so I'm wondering how they'll do that divide. It, it's one of the things that I actually really like about it because it really effectively shows as an immigrant family how you kind of swap back and forth between the two languages. This film did that too, The Godfather Part Two. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of Italian. For for as much as I've heard grousing about I don't want to go to a movie to read the subtitles, and yet The Godfather Part Two has so much subtitled Italian, and yet it does, I, I've never once heard that complaint with The Godfather Part Two. Yeah, well, the looking at the IMDb Top 250, everything ever all at once is at number 226, and there are only two films from 2022 so far on that list, and we're recording this November 13th, 2022. So if you're looking at the IMDb Top 250, this would predict that Top Gun Maverick is going to take home Best Picture, and everything everywhere all at once would be nominated. We'll see how that plays out, because Top Gun... I haven't seen Maverick yet, and I've heard it is far better than you'd expect from a sequel 20 years later. Or, actually, what, 35, 40 years later? But, yeah, it doesn't strike me as a genre that Oscar voters often take seriously. But those of us recording, we'll see. Those of you listening are going, guys, this is old news. (laughs) All right, so did we have any other thoughts on this before we tell people what to expect next month? At the risk of being repetitive, you know, sometimes we cover things like content warning and who would you recommend this to i think for godfather we said everybody it's just one of those foundational cornerstone films i don't know that i have a preference between the two like like john said earlier you know a lot of people believe that godfather part two is the superior film to the godfather so it is (laughs) it is every bit as every bit as um foundational if you consider yourself a film lover and you haven't seen this film, you, you need to finish watching whatever you're watching. And even though it may be as hard, it may be hard for someone like John and I to like break our list. You need to immediately slot this into the next thing you're watching. Yeah, this is um, I don't know when I hear, especially people of our generation or slightly older, whenever I hear people talk about just greatest films of all time. This, The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two always come up. Always, always, always. And it's just, it's just solid drama. It's a solid drama about a family, about um, history, about the way things were at the time. It encapsulates, you know, a period. Cause, cause one thing we haven't talked about is that even though this is a 1974 film, and so it's old from our perspective, it is, in turn, a period piece. So we have, you know, the 50s and the 60s being uh, portrayed here in, um, in a way that doesn't feel 60s or 50s stereotyping. You know, that's just, that's just the setting they used. And I don't know, the, I can just get back into, into long, long discussions about the different aspects of this film because there's so much going on to it. But yes, The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two are foundational. Godfather Part 3 is an interesting sequel, but The Godfather and Godfather Part 2, to me, it's they should be considered as a duology, as, as, as the two halves of a single work. And um, I'm not sure that I could say which one I prefer over the other, because each has its own strengths. The Godfather Part 2 has the flashbacks, which I think add to the depth of the narrative. I'm not sure that it would stand as well without those flashbacks. They certainly add to the experience of the film. Um, and whereas the first film is all in the present day, well, present day of the setting, not the present day of the release. Yeah, I, I feel like the flashbacks in this are similar to Michael's sojourn to Sicily in the first film. They give it a greater depth and scope, and it it breaks things up. You know, one of the reasons why Francis Ford Coppola deserved Best Director for this is you know, there's almost a softer focus to the flashback scenes that kind of give you a visual separation from what's going on in the current day in the film. Yeah, they do definitely change the tone of the film between locations so you can immediately see which 
era this scene is taking place in. So yeah, I would also say that this is part of the conversation. Parents would probably want to watch it before deciding if their children are old enough for it, because there, there definitely are some moments of violence in particular, and some other elements that I wouldn't watch it with a two-year-old for sure. You know, when you're in the teens, it depends on the kids. So yeah, know your kid, preview it, and then decide if you're watching it together. Um, I've always been a bit more liberal in my approach to, to children and films. I think that I, if a child is old enough to appreciate the drama of this film, if they have that maturity of storytelling enjoyment, because it, it is, it is a, a slow drama, then they're probably old enough to cope with and handle the, the difficult elements of the film, but to, to each their own. And you know what? Thinking about it, I would recommend seeing The Godfather before you watch The Godfather Part 2. So if you haven't seen either, start with number one. And this is more subdued in that respect than Part 1. So it's not tame. It's just not as extreme as Part 1. So if you've already seen it with someone who's good with Part 1, I don't think you'll have any issues with Part 2. And with Part 1, the the violence that is shocking is meant to be shocking for the storytelling in both parts. So, again, it's different. Parents will start at different ages. But if you're concerned about violence, check it out. And then Godfather 3 is like, yeah, violence is awesome. All right, so shall we let people know what to expect next month? Yes, uh, next month we check ourselves into the um, asylum along with Jack Nicholson. Or One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Also nominated were Barry Lyndon, Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws, and a documentary about my hometown, Nashville joking about it being a documentary but <laughs> yes we've got stanley kubrick films coming up and listeners know how i feel about stanley kubrick and one flew over the cuckoo's nest is the second of three films to do the five major sweeps if we just tip our hands on that part at this point it took home best picture best actor best actress best director and best screenplay in the screenplay category it's eligible for so it, that's only happened three times in history. Started with it happened one night in 1934. It won't happen again until Silence of the Lambs. We should try to have someone special join us for Silence of the Lambs at least. What do you think, Trey? I think so. I can think of at least one person we'd probably invite on for it. Okay. Uh, maybe that person can have uh, some hava beans and a nice Chianti as they record. Uh, maybe. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, join us next month for the era that introduced the blockbuster. And I do have, I assume that y'all are going to address one very important question when you're talking about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That question being, is it Jaws? I'm sure we'll, that will come up at some point. All right. So, uh, John, thank you very much for joining us. Happy to be here. This was fantastic. I really enjoyed the opportunity to rewatch these films and get to talk with y'all about them. Thanks, John. Yes. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.